You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, today we do conclude uh, our preaching series through First Samuel. We'll pick it up again next fall in Second Samuel. But today we can bring to conclusion all we've seen about two primary characters, David and Saul, and today we're going to see how one is on the rise, and another we're going to see in his demise. The chapters are 1 Samuel 30 and 31. So if you have your Bibles, locate 1 Samuel 30 and 31, would you? We'll spend most of our time in chapter 30, seeing David on the rise. In other words, David kind of in his comeback. I think one of the best ways to kind of get you into this and seeing what God is doing, what kind of story he's writing, is to answer a question that came in last week. We took a few live in the service. Uh, Here's one that came in. I want to kind of show this to you. It it kind of helps us understand what's really going on kind of from a 30,000-foot view. Here's the question. How do you think David's character changed the most since chapter 21? You remember the, the running episode of David's life is chronicled in 21 through 29. And this this person is wondering, how has his character changed the most since chapter 21? And do you think this prepared him to be king? My opinion would be, the answer answer is this, in my opinion. He has shown and grown in his ability to trust the Lord and not himself. And has this prepared him to be king? For sure. And we've seen Saul take the opposite approach. Saul has become more falsely confident in himself and less trustworthy in the Lord. And this was uh, contrasted beautifully in 28 and 20, uh, excuse me, 29 and 30. We'll see 30 today, but in 29, what is Saul doing? He's going to a witch to find out what God would have him do. Whereas in 30, we see David at what I think is his lowest point going to God. This is a book of contrast, and it ends in the same way, with these two guys contrasted greatly. One's on the rise, one's in his demise, one is being set up to be king, the other sees his death, fulfillment of God's judgment as given through Samuel. So this is where we are, 1 Samuel chapter 30. I think the answer to this question, that being of trust, this is where David grew the most, how his character was changed, and this prepared him to be king, is really seen in a singular verse in chapter 30. In fact, I'm going to spend some time on our lab just going through this verse. We've had several weeks in this series where we've gone over two whole chapters, even three plus whole chapters. And if you found it difficult, so have I, by the way. It was important we do it that way for the narrative's sake. But this morning, we're going to pretty much just look at one single verse that I think helps us kind of unfold the rest of this chapter. It's verse 6. This is the verse that follows what I think is David's lowest point. He's been on the run. He's had some bright moments, more dark moments. He's shown an ability to manipulate leverage, to lie, to, to try to steer things his way, to try to control. He's on march back to Ziklag after being found out he was a double agent. He goes back to Ziklag and he finds that his entire family, everyone's wife and kids, they've been kidnapped and the city has been burned. The scriptures tell us that they didn't kill anyone at all. 
But the city was ravaged and burned. And this is where David finds himself for the first time. It's not just David who's at his, uh, we'll call it, wit's end. He's running. But now they've captured his family. And interestingly enough, he's about to find that the group he's with are going to turn on him. They're thinking of stoning him. What does he do at this low moment? Chapter 30, verse 6, the end of it says this, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I don't know what version you have, but could you just read that last phrase with me? Just read it out loud with me. Ready? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is on the hills of the beginning of verse 6. He was greatly distressed. In Hebrew, the words greatly distressed speak of being cornered, kind of backed into a no-win situation. Why? Because folks were looking at stoning him, his wives, his kids, other men's wives and their kids. Everyone was kidnapped. The city was burned. He'd come back to realize, wow, what has my own conniving and planning led to? And what did he do? Read it again with me, ready? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Let's take a closer look at this verse, can we? What's going on in this singular phrase that I think helps us understand the rest of the chapter? Maybe you can take some of these notes with you. I'm going to kind of walk you through just a few things for a few minutes here. Let's first of all, just under, let's kind of circle the phrase that we're looking at. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, as a broader note here, I want to show you something. I think this singular phrase points to four encounters that the chapter unfolds. I'll lay these out for you in a minute, but it's verses 7 through about 10, 11 through 15, 16 through 20, and then 21 through 30. Four opportunities David has to showcase how God strengthened him, okay? So just kind of keep that in mind. This is kind of a... I would maybe call it a hinge phrase. We're going to see why this was so important, why it mattered so much. But notice some things about this phrase, first of all. I think it's proactive. David strengthened himself. This is not to minimize God's part or even God's sovereignty over it, God's motivation towards it. But at some point, David realizes, I need to spend time with God. I need to see what God thinks about this. I need to trust in the Lord. And so David strengthened himself. It's what we'd call a proactive phrase here. That's, that, that says proactive. Trust me, it does. All right. It's also a very um, personal phrase. David strengthened himself. You see that? Notice this. In the Lord, his God. So let's just write down the word personal. So it's a proactive action. It is a personal action. It's also a, a solitary action. David strengthened himself. And the sense, the ambiance of the text is that David either went somewhere or found some exclusive place. You, you kind of get the sense that there was no one else in view here but himself. Why do we say that? First of all, what were the other folks in David's camp trying to do? They were thinking about stoning him. They were probably meeting, wondering, what can we do to take David out? So, so the, the ambience of the text, the nuance of the scene, everything says to us, David was all alone by himself somewhere like God. 
It's just me and you, a solitary place. It's also a very powerful action. David did what to himself? Strengthened himself. So we'll just write down powerful. The word strengthened in the Hebrew language really refers to sometimes the idea of repairing something, to put strength in, to fortify. So it shows what's happening here. David is weak. He gets with the Lord all alone. And he finds strength. He finds fortification. We can use the word repair. He's not in a good place, but he knows with God he will be. Notice this. It's also divine. What do I mean by that? I want to just spend a minute here talking about this. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David, church, listen very carefully. David did not strengthen himself within himself. Now, did, the, did his time, was it solitary and did he find time alone and did it have an effect upon himself? Yes. Did he take action uh, within himself to do something? Yes. But it wasn't that David looked within himself for some kind of power or like, well, I've got this thing in me. No, David had to look, watch this, outside of himself. And can I just say to you, point blank, Transparent and honest. The help we need will not come from within ourselves. The salvation that we need is not something we have within ourselves and we find within ourselves by uncovering ourselves or or looking deep and saying, oh, I, I guess I have some good in there after all. The only help that we'll ever have that will change our souls and strengthen our lives is help from outside of ourselves. Namely, God the Lord. The answer to your situation, whether pre-salvation or whether after salvation, the answer to every situation is not within yourself. It's outside of yourself. His name is God. And going to God is the answer. Does that make sense, guys? It's a divine answer. And lastly, I'll just mention this to you. There's nothing to circle because I think it's kind of interesting here. It is undescribed. In our study group, we talked about this a good bit, how there's really no, there's no description about what David did. We can make some assumptions. He does seem to have a solitary, uh, you know, he seems to go somewhere alone. He, it, it results in a strengthening kind of power. It is focused on the Lord as God. Yes, but we don't know, you know, did, what did he do? Did he read the Torah? Did he, did he write a psalm? Did he sing a song? Did he pray? Did he meditate? All those things are, are things we see in the Psalms. What did he do? We don't know. But whatever it was, it was focused on God and resulted in strengthening himself. So I think there's a reason the author leaves out all the ways perhaps David did this or, or how he did it. It's because he maybe didn't want to provide like a formulaic equation for us. Like if you do these three things, you'll have this result. And then we kind of get stuck on maybe the, the way something's done or the formula and we forget the real meaning behind it. Does that make sense? All we can say is this. There is some sense in which this is undescribed. But what David did when, look at this, when his wife Abigail, and the other one's mentioned later, she was from Jezreel, Ahinoam, when they were kidnapped, taken, when David was greatly distressed, when he was cornered, what did he do? Say it with me. Ready, church? David strengthened himself 
in the Lord his God. So let me just make some very plain and simple application. And then we'll kind of show you how this shows up. I don't have a lot of application. I have one. And we can go back to our slide that has the chapters mentioned here. Is if you're not spending time with God, you're missing out on what makes life tick. All right? I mean, I'm captain of the obvious this morning, okay? I'm going to speak to you with things that you know, at least for a few minutes here. I'm going to talk to you about things that you're aware of, things that (laughs) this is not new news, but I'm convinced through informal research, through counseling conversations, and just through my own experiences, on my own failures and frustrations, one of my largest struggles is setting aside daily time to be with the Lord God. Have you ever felt like everything in the world tries to creep in when you try to kneel down? You ever felt that way? When you try to close the door and open the Word, why is it then that the email suddenly has to be checked? Or the kid wakes up. Or your mind starts wandering. Or the phone rings. Or all the things you have to get at the grocery store come to your mind then. Or the errands you've got to run. Or the people you've got to call. Sometimes you can't remember what you've got to do when you're in the kitchen. But kneel down to pray and read the word. And you remember perfectly, don't you? <laughs> have you ever felt completely distracted? I, I don't know how... If this is, I can prove all this, but I wonder sometimes how much of that is not Satan just trying to pull us away from time with the Lord so that we don't strengthen ourselves in his presence. I can't prove how everything works in that way, but I will say this to you. Satan will fight against you in your effort to spend time with God. Which says to me, if he knows it's that important, why don't we? Now, I think some of you are now saying, Todd, you don't know my schedule. I go, I'm, I'm busy. I, I start early. I end late. I've got a lot of responsibility. You're right. Then you're too busy not to spend time with God. Well, you don't know how many calls I have to make every day and what I do and who I've got to answer to. And You're right. Well, then you're too busy not to pray. See, because the more we play that card, the more we think, well, I've got a lot to do. I think it beckons us more to spend time with God in prayer and in His Word. Now, let me just kind of boil things down to these two habits. I think they are the two primary habits that I think form time with God. Is there meditation that's effective? Yes. Is it helpful? Yes. Fasting, I think, is very helpful and biblical and effective. Scripture memory, effective, helpful? Yes. So this is not to say those things don't matter. But if you had to boil it all down to what are the two habits that form a time with God that are essential to every single day in my life. It makes life tick. It makes it just make sense. Good and bad. It's this. Read God's word and pray to your father. I told you I didn't come with rocket science news today. The latest discovery, the newest BuzzFeed, you know, I don't have it. I've got one single verse that shows us what David did at his lowest moment, which says to us, if after about 10 years of running, 
If God had to bring him to the place where he said, David, this is what I'm after, where you are solitarily, exclusively in my presence, trusting me for everything that's ahead, this is what I'm after. If that's what it took for David, that's where we have to get to. And so I just want to say at the outset, everything in this chapter kind of unfolds from, from David learning this lesson. You know what? The vertical is first, the horizontal second. Say that with me. Vertical first, horizontal second. What do you find in this chapter? You don't find David first and foremost trying to solve the the coup attempt that may be taking place. He's not making military plans this time first and foremost. David is first and foremost seeking God. We say at first time a lot of times that our first and best action is always prayer. But would you agree with me that sometimes that feels like your most futile action? I do. Our staff meets every Wednesday for prayer, 11 o'clock. And sometimes it's like pulling yourself away from your desk or your task to go pray. Like, I'm getting a lot done. i got to go pray? And we all feel that way, and yet we do. And yet we have to admit and laugh to each other like, man... What is it that sometimes we feel ineffective and useless and futile when we pray, but we remind each other every Wednesday, 11 o'clock, this is the first and best thing we could do today, is to pray and spend time as a team in God's presence. Vertical first, horizontal second. This is what it means to trust the Lord. You see, trust equals vertical first. Horizontal second. It doesn't mean that horizontal never comes into play or that you never deal with it. It just means that your first action is God. What do you say? What does your word command? What is it, how does it guide me? What is your Holy Spirit leading me? Let's talk about this, God. It's vertical first. It's finding time with the Lord your God to strengthen yourself. Yes, when you're on a good day or at your lowest point. It's vertical first. Horizontal second. That's the, the practical definition of trust. You see, essentially, it is all about relationship. What's missing from that phrase? The S. And this is where, and you'll have to forgive me here if I need forgiveness. Because I'm going to kind of, just kind of, I'm not, I'm not going to vent, but I'm going to just share with you what I think is a, a way the church has gone a, a little awry on one thing. We've said for years in church circles around America. It's all about relationships. I get what they're saying with that. Are you with me? That this matters. We've done that almost to the exclusion of the relationship. And I just this morning want to say something to you. It really won't matter what happens in the relationships if you're not taking care of the relationship. Church will become a a, a club, organization. Everyone will appear to be happy. You'll kind of play the game of looking good. But no one's really walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not worshiping God. He's not the the sole focus. We're not spending time. We're, We're acting like we're okay, but we're about an inch deep and a mile wide sometimes. Because we're more worried about the relationships than we are the relationship. And David knew something in this chapter. His wives were captive. His village was burned. His friends were turning on him. 
And he turned and went vertical first. He knew the relationship was priority, primary. The relationships, secondary. If you were to put it in an equation, it looked like this. Vertical plus horizontal equals trust. You get God's perspective. You get His will. You see what He's doing. You talk to Him. Then you obey what He says. That's trust. Again, it's all about relationship. This is what's going on in this text. And this is really our our simple take-home truth today. That trust equals vertical first, horizontal second. So tomorrow when you wake up, we may even back that truck up. Let's just say today as you are awake, (laughs) you'll encounter a number of things along the spectrum of good to bad. What will be your response? Will it be vertical first, horizontal second? I'm hoping and praying this will be your response, that you will go to God first in every situation. And that you will, as Solomon said, who is David's son, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. What's that verse saying? Vertical first, horizontal second. Every time. That's what it means to trust. How did this show up in David's life? Let me show you the four passages I was mentioning to you. Can I? The first one is in verse 7. He tells the priest to bring the ephod. It was what the priest would wear. It contained the umen and the therm. And by that they would often discern God's will. So David was brought the ephod, and look what verse 8 says. And David inquired of the Lord. I don't see this as part of verse 6. Some commentators do. This is an opinion here, by the way. I think this is his first response to the Lord's strengthening in verse 6. In fact, verse 6 probably has a little bit of a repentance kind of ambiance as well. I think David's coming back to the Lord. He's strengthening the Lord. The Lord's kind of repairing him. All this is going on. So as he's spending this time with God, as he's vertical first, what's, what does he say? Okay, the first thing I do is I've got to ask God what to do about the immediate situation. So he inquires of the Lord. He doesn't make his own plans. He doesn't run away and hide. He asks God. I think this is the first thing that happens after the Lord strengthens him. He knows that God needs to lean in on this situation. Verses 11 through 15, I think they show us that David was not only a sensitive um, man on the rise, now he was a merciful man on the rise. They found an Egyptian in the open country, verse 11 says. They brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate. Gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. And So this Egyptian was serving the Amalekite army, but apparently he fell sick. So the army left him behind to die. David discovers him in the wilderness. When David could have killed him as an enemy combatant, he instead tries to help him. Now, did he get information from him? Yes, but watch this, church. In the law, there is instructions about how to treat what the Bible calls an alien. He uses the word stranger sometimes in Leviticus and parts of the law. 
David obeyed the law here, which says to me he was sensitive to God's leading. Perhaps he did read the law back in verse 6. Perhaps he read in those parts about how you to treat strangers, knowing, not, not knowing that perhaps he'd meet one. God knew that. We don't know. But here's the interesting thing. When he met this Egyptian, he didn't take his anger out and kill him like he wanted to do with Nabal. Remember that? There was this, this merciful, compassionate response. It was an obedient response to the law. So David is, is a sensitive man. He's becoming that. He's also a merciful man. He's becoming that. Beginning in verse 16, he's a victorious man. He goes and he does actually rescue his family. He brings back every single one of them and says, look at verse 17, chapter 30. David struck, down, struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 He recovered all the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. They called this David's spoil. By the way, these were the Lord's enemies. He'll tell us that in a little bit. This is different than David being rash or getting personally offended at something that he shouldn't have been offended about. This was actually God um, using David to strike back his enemies. David is victorious in this way. So we see a sensitive man on the rise, a a merciful man on the rise. We see a a victorious man. We also see a generous man. Look at verse 23. After they bring back the spoil, some of the men who, um, some of the men were upset that David was going to share the spoil with everyone. You see, they had about 600 guys marching to, to fight the Amalekites, the ones who had burned the city, taken his family's hostage and kidnapped them. They got to this brook Besor, and not all of them could make it. Now remember, this is after a three-day march from, I think it was Aphek, south to Ziklag. They get there, see the city burn, so they immediately begin to march. So this is a three- or four-day hike. They're probably somewhat hungry, thirsty, they're tired, they're worn out. It's at least probably 50-plus miles they've already been marching. So 200 got to the brook and said, man, we're just worn out. We can't go any further. He lets them stay behind. They kind of kept the baggage. When the victory's over, they come back to the, to the camp. And some of the folks are like, you know what? If you stayed behind to keep the baggage, you don't get to share in the spoil. You'll get enough to maybe handle your family, but you don't get any extra. Because, you know, you, you, that's not the way it works. And David goes to bat, and he becomes a very generous man. Look what he says in verse 23. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, speaking of them when they keep back things and not share. Because God has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. In other words, we're going to be generous because this is God's work, not ours. We're not taking credit for it. It's God's glory. Who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Someone asked me recently, well, is this communism? No, it's genuine Christianity. There is no sense here of state ownership. David's just saying, you know what? There's been a battle won by God. Let's share and share alike. Whether you kept the bags, which was an important task, or whether you went to the battle. We all rejoice together. It makes me think of John 4. Jesus Christ is in the city of Samaria. The disciples are worried about food, and he's saying to them, I've got food to eat you don't know about. He's speaking of the towns about to come out, and multitudes will be saved, how that nourishes him. They're thinking about, you know, the Jerusalem Wendy's and Chick-fil-A and Chipotle, right? Hey, where's that kind of food, right? Well, the town starts coming out. 
There's this massive crusade kind of revival. And, and they're all just amazed. And Jesus says some interesting things. He says, guys, some of you watered and some of you planted, but we will all reap together. Isn't that good? As we think about our own situation here, you know, some of you will actually go to other countries and live. We've got three who are on the way even as we speak. A few of them are in this service. I see, uh, I'm not going to call your names out, I know. But three of you are back there. I don't know if the other couple is in this service or not. They may be at 1030. We've got another one in about a year and a half or two going to head to a foreign field to live. And I'm praying that God will raise up more in between. I've been praying this for about a month now. Who's next? Because I love what's happened in the last two and a half years. I love the men of our church, our elders, who have kind of foreseen this and got us ready for this financially. I'm so thankful for godly leaders in our church who, who've kind of understood this was kind of happening. Our vision offering is 92000 now. You guys are in support. I, I can see just through your wallets, you're saying we love that God is making us into a sending environment. A church plant this year, one next year. But as... But what's going to happen is we're going to kind of get to a place where we're like, okay, when it's done, what, what now? I don't want to pray what now. I want to pray who's next. That God would take some of the folks on this platform that were here a few weeks ago, these seniors, and say, hey, I want you to live in another place strategically for my purposes. Maybe there's other couples in this room. You know, young couples with no kids are the most mobile they'll ever be in their life. And every parent said, what? You know it's true, right? And that's not, not bad to... I mean, the children thing doesn't make it impossible, but I just tell you, before you have children, pray and ask yourself, would God have us live somewhere at a time when we are most mobile and agile? Would he have us live somewhere to, to be most strategic with our gifts for his purposes? You see, there are folks who will do that. And that requires there are folks who will stay here and pray. You're not less spiritual. You're not less important. You have a different role. Does that make sense? There are folks who need to give sacrificially here. Like you did a few weeks ago in our vision offering. Just beautiful. What I want to say to you is, it's not like those who go to the other countries like, hey, you you get a better reward. You're more important. No. We will all reap together. Every single person. Every single person in these countries, these folks are going to live in. That comes to Christ. You will share in that reward as you stay here and pray and send and give and intercede and act hospitably. Does that make sense, guys? We will share together. I think David understands this. And so he's just saying, guys, let's be generous with what God has given us. In fact, his generosity extends beyond his immediate company. Look at verse 26. When they came to Ziklag, which by the time he gets here, now of course it's burned. He's just, he's just coming back to ruins. But he takes some of the spoil and he gives it to the other lands and villages and areas that he had spent time roaming in. You see verse 26? Here is a present for you. So he had some things sent. I guess, you know, um, ancient UPS perhaps, or as Bruce would say, the ancient FedEx, Right? He sends them to a lot of countries. I think he's doing two things. He's showing gratefulness, but he's also anticipating that he will be king. He knows what's coming. And so he's kind of preparing the way in these places that had protected him, where he'd roamed in the caves. In fact, let me just add a little more to this. The word present in verse 26, it's the Hebrew word for blessing. And most believe this is somewhat of a messianic 
I don't want to say prophecy, but perhaps a messianic indication that David knew his responsibility was to bless others. In kind of a shadowing, a foreshadowing of the ultimate king, Christ, who would bless others. This reminds me of Genesis 12 when God said to Abraham, Through you I will bless all the nations. And he's referring to Christ coming through that line. Here David again kind of takes up that mantle. He, he sends a blessing. This is all a, what's happening in David's life as he, I think, repented came back to God, strengthened himself in God in 30, verse 6, and it shows up in these four ways. He becomes sensitive, merciful, victorious, and generous. What happens to Saul? Well, while David is on the rise, we see Saul's ultimate demise, don't we? I'll just read a few verses here in chapter 31 to show how Saul actually did not go vertical. Saul went, and no pun intended here, totally horizontal. Verse 3 says, the battle pressed hard against Saul. Here is the battle that Samuel told him would happen, that Israel would be defeated, that he would actually join him the next day. So probably when David is inquiring of the Lord, Saul is inquiring of the witch in the exact same time frame. One's in Endor up north, one's in Ziklag down south. What a contrast the author here is showing. Well, the battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him. He was badly wounded. So somewhere he had an arrow in him probably. But Saul, fearful of what the enemy would do to him if he got captured, he asked his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer says, no, I won't do that. So Saul, verse 4 says, took his own sword and fell upon it. This verse indicates Saul committed suicide. But a previous chapter, what is it, chapter 28, says that Samuel said to Saul, tomorrow you'll be with me. I do believe Saul was saved. I believe he joined Samuel in that place. I believe Saul's sons were saved. We know of Jonathan, he said that he, at one point he was righteous. Now, we can disagree on that, by the way, and get along great. But I think in this case here, it helps to understand that suicide does not automatically send you to hell. That's an unbiblical wrong thought. Has everybody been clear on that? Now, are there folks who are lost who commit suicide? Yes. Do they go to hell? Yes. Why? Not because they committed suicide, because they didn't believe. All right? In this case, I think Saul was a Christian, carnal and away from God. And this is the ultimate demise of someone who only keeps a horizontal look. Similar to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, when God struck them dead for their lying. I believe they were born again. It sinned and God showed the church the need for purity. Verse 6, Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. What you see here is God's, watch this church, as hard as this is to say, listen, you see God's will being done. David is on his way to being king. God is preparing him. And Saul is being judged for his sin even though it seems it took a long time. Yes, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but make sure you know this, church, they do turn. And it can be said about God's will the same way. Sometimes the wheels of God's will turn slowly, but understand, they do turn.
If you have questions, feel free to text those in. I won't take them live today. I'll just let you text those in because I'd rather... I'll answer them later on my blog or I'll text you personally, just give you what I think. I'd rather show you how these four things that happened to David are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because I can think of no better way to conclude this book than to show you what the whole book's been trying to say, that we're to look, watch this, through David to Jesus. Say it with me. Through David to Jesus. That's the point of this series. That's why it's titled this way. It's the kings and the what? So all of the kings of this book we've seen so far, which has just been two, Saul and David, are designed to point us to the ultimate king. So watch this. How does David point us to Jesus Christ? What's happening here? Well, was, was Jesus Christ sensitive? I'll walk you through these four ways that in the end, David showed to be God's man, a man of his own heart. Watch this. Christ was sensitive to the Father's will in his life. He consistently prayed in the New Testament, and he would say this, I'm here to do the work of the Father. I only do what the Father asked me to do. I'm here by the will of the Father. Christ's entire life was one of sensitivity to the Lord. In fact, he would often leave the crowds and go and spend time with his Father. You would think, well, there's crowds are there, they're listening. Why don't you hang out with the crowds? That's where the needs are. No, he knew his greater need was the relationship, not just the relationships. So Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the greater David. He's the perfect example of sensitivity. He's also the fulfillment of, of mercy. Christ and his death. Man, he, when he could have slain you and me justly. No distractions. Listen, church. When he could have judged us and sent us to pay for our sins, Christ stepped in for us as the merciful, compassionate God. Amen. He did what David did in a much greater, impactful way. David showed mercy to an Egyptian. Christ has shown mercy to sinners. And not just by sparing our lives, He actually took our place in the sacrificial We would call it theologically the penal substitution of Christ's death. It wasn't that he just took our place. He took our place and he took our punishment. So in this way, God is just. Sin has been paid for because Christ has taken our place and our punishment. What a merciful king. Amen. But he didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay on the cross. He arose. And in that, we see his victory over the Lord's enemies. Over our enemies, sin, death, hell. All of that, of course, driven by Satan and those demons. But in the resurrection, God vindicated his son. God validated the sacrifice. And we see Christ victorious in his resurrection, the ultimate fulfillment of David's victories over many of God's enemies in that time period. And lastly, we see Christ as the generous king, don't we? Offering salvation extending the call to all who would believe. So as he reigns today with all authority, Matthew 28 says, what is Christ offering? Why do folks think, well, he's fallen asleep. He's forgotten. No, he's just long-suffering, Peter says. He's not willing that any should perish. This is our generous, compassionate, victorious, sensitive king. 
who is the greatest fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of everything we see in David. Now, would I love to extrapolate this and get on a good preaching kick right now? I would. But somebody's already done that way better than me. Who is that, Todd? It's Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. Now, you didn't know those were his first two names, but you've probably heard of him as S.M. Lockridge. He preached a message in Detroit in 1976. Here's a part of that that talks about the king above all kings. Listen and watch. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. (laughs) Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod 
couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Amen. That's Amen. My That's my king. Amen. Amen. Nothing like some good preaching. Amen. So let me ask you, do you know him? We haven't walked through 1 Samuel to get to know David or Saul. We've walked through 1 Samuel to get to know the ultimate greater fulfillment of both of those, and that is Jesus Christ. 